Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. On March 25, 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory in New York City burned, tragically killing 146 workers. It is remembered as one of the most infamous incidents in American industrial history. The tragedy brought widespread attention to the dangerous sweatshop conditions of factories, spurred the creation of the FDNY's Bureau of Fire Prevention, and led to the development of a series of laws and regulations that better protected the safety of workers. But what has been curiously absent or understated from the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire narrative is a closer examination of firefighting efforts that took place that day, lessons regarding rescue of people who were trapped, a more detailed understanding of the leadership demonstrated in the wake of the event, and the legacy of the fire today, just to name a few topics. In this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast, we hope to contribute more broadly to the historical narrative of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. The depth of this conversation is made possible by the extensive research efforts employed by our guest in this episode, FDNY Lieutenant Matt Connor. Matt was appointed to the New York City Fire Department in 2005. He worked as a firefighter in Engine Company 222 and Ladder Company 124 in the Bedford, Stuyvesant, and Bushwick neighborhoods of Brooklyn. He was promoted to the rank of lieutenant in 2020 and assigned to Battalion 37 in the 15th Division, again in Brooklyn. Matt has also served in the FDNY Bureau of Training as an instructor in the Water Management Program and as a performance coach for tactical workshops as part of the FDNY Mental Performance Initiative. Matt received his bachelor's from the University of Delaware in 2004. He's currently pursuing a master's at the Graduate Center City University of New York, where he's completing his thesis on the Triangle Fire. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Patty. How are you? Thanks for having me. I mentioned a bit about your background in the intro, but do you mind sharing why you began researching the Triangle Fire and what was your aim for the research? Well, I sort of came to the Triangle Fire like most students who studied history in high school. The first time I ever heard of the fire was uh, in Mr. Keene's senior history class. His tests tended to be easy, and uh, I, I was able to get away with uh, a nap during a lot of his classes. <laughs> and I, I remember perking up when he was discussing this particular historical event. And it just, the, the, the sheer horror of it, and I was amazed at how tragic it was, and also mm-hmm. the, the depth of how important it was in American history. Uh, is something that I took away from that. And it wasn't for another 10 years where I sort of picked up on this topic. At that point, I was in graduate school at the Joseph S. Murphy Institute for Worker Education, but I was there studying as a, a new graduate student. And the, the centennial of this fire was about to happen this fo- the following year. So this mm-hmm. is 2010 that I first sort of reinvigorated my interest in the fire from that initial exposure. And it was all in response to the preparations for the centennial. So there were a lot of things going on in the academic community and the New York City history community to commemorate the fire. And one of those events was a CUNY-wide academic conference. The name of the conference was uh, Triangle Out of the Smoke and Flame, and it was a, it was a retrospective look at the fire and its, and its historical importance over, over the last century. And my sort of piece of that pie was participating with a, a group of fire service professionals and the, the question at hand for the panel was, could the Triangle Fire happen again today? And this is, again, this is in 2011. My argument at that time was that not only could the Triangle Fire happen again, it, it has happened again. And that was a, a discussion I had with the other individual on the panel who were taking another position based on the celebration of the reforms that took place. So what I was looking at was basically how the conditions the industrial conditions that created the fire and the lack of safety reforms, of safety practices rather, in the factory setting, those conditions were essentially, while they've been reformed in the, in the United States and uh, in places like New York City, in other places in the world, developing countries specifically, those protections are largely absent. There's a particular example of such fire that actually happened in 2010. It's called the Hamim Corporation. 
and that was actually a garment factory. So the Triangle Fire occurred in a garment factory, and mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a direct example 100 years later that the protections for industrial workers and manufacturers and laborers is a, is a continued fight. And, the, and not that we shouldn't celebrate our victories, but we should also look to uh, broaden our understanding of uh, where those conditions exist elsewhere in the world, given the, the world economy. At this point, you're already a New York City firefighter. So talk about worlds colliding. Correct. So I joined the New York City Fire Department in 2005. So still a young, young firefighter and uh, still learning my craft. And But I also had a, an interest in history, both in understanding the world around me and also as something that could be applied to make myself better professionally in terms of performance. And so one of the things we do in the fire department, especially in New York City, is we look to past tragedies to learn from those tragedies. That's been, in terms of firefighter education, that's been an approach. So we study fatal fires where firefighters are killed. We study fires where firefighters are ser seriously injured. And we also study instances of you know, a significant civilian loss, uh, multiple civilians in certain fires. Those fires stand out. We look to those examples to learn from them. And that was sort of where I was, where I was coming to this fire was, uh, you know, in one sense is developing professional and in another sense, uh, someone who was interested in, in sort of the, the, the city around me. I was a native New Yorker, but I, I, my family moved out just outside New York into the suburbs uh, when I was a child. And I was always drawn back to the city in many ways. Um, I had a lot of family that lived here, specifically in Brooklyn, Staten Island. And uh, I was always excited to get on a train and come into Manhattan and explore. And so in a, in a, broader sense, uh, this exploration of the Triangle Fire was in many ways connected to my curiosity about New York City and its history and how it informs our, our lives now. So you really spent a solid, I would say, decade studying this fire. And by early 2020, Leadership Under Fire held a retreat in Brooklyn, New York, and you hosted an in-person human performance case study of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which brings us to this recording today. So do you want to briefly describe what the case study entailed and how it was received? Right. So again, this is this is a 10-year journey that I've been sort of uh, engaged in this material. And at that point, my focus had shifted from, you know, the centennial and what that meant to trying to formulate some connection um, as, a, as a graduate student as a, and as a developing firefighter and aspiring fire officer in the, in the New York City Fire Department, uh, establishing that connection between our history and, and how it can make us better. And the way I was approaching it was, as I looked deeper into the fire, my training in, as a firefighter began to just really take hold of my of how I was looking at the fire. So I can remember after being initially interested in the centennial and presenting on the panel at the conference, um, I remember coming across a, a book in The Strand, which is a famous bookstore in New York City, if, any, if anybody's unfamiliar. But what I found there was uh, a first edition copy of Leon Stein's book, The Triangle Fire. This was published in 19... 62 and it was he was um, a very interesting figure and and the, and every everything that's been done in terms of academic research around the triangle fire stands on his shoulders which is a, a position that many people take uh, who have really looked deeply into the fire and um, I'm, I'm just one of them who have been involved in that and, and not even uh, nearly to the level that some of these uh, academic uh, professionals and journalists have have, uh, have done. I'm looking at a very narrow window into the fire in terms of how um, what I saw as an absence of the history, in, in the sense that it was, there was a lack of understanding of this as a as a structural fire, as a as a firefight. As you know, we had a, a professionalized fire department that responded to this event, and from what I could tell, there was a lack of attention to that in that context. And I thought that kind of showed in in um, you know people from outside the fire service. Uh, look at fires differently than people inside the fire service. And I was looking at it through those eyes of an insider. And I was fascinated by what I found. And, uh, and that all started with a dusty first edition book of Leon Stein's <laughs> seminal work on this on this uh, historic fire. So do you want to briefly describe what the case study for the Leadership Under Fire retreat entailed? Absolutely. So one of the exciting things about participating in, in the, the event for LUF was that we were going to be able to actually visit the site of the Triangle Fire. So when people hear about this fire, they sometimes people assume that the building burned down because it was such a, uh, a massive fire, and what, that's that's very connected to some of this, the elements of this fire. So the the building itself is uh, is still standing. At the time it was constructed, it was named the Ash Building. It stands on Washington Place at the corner of Green Street, and that's just east of Washington Square Park. Now it's being used as a, an NYU facility for classrooms and and labs and things like that. The exciting part of uh, 
participating in the LUF event last year was that we got to take uh, participants for the event to the actual building, thanks to the, the help from Lisa Kale, who works for NYU. And we were afforded the opportunity to actually tour the building and walk walk the stairwells, you know, see the floors where this fire actually took place and, and see history, essentially history firsthand. And I thought that was a, a visceral experience for people that you could read about the fire, you could maybe watch a, a video. Uh, there's been documentaries made about it. But to go to the building and see, you know, what people might have seen and imagine that experience, this tragic experience, um, I think that was powerful for people. And we got a lot of good feedback, feedback from the event. And and we're excited to sort of uh, extend that experience through this um, examination, through the podcast, and, and kind of look at the fire again. So, Matt, thank you for that background. I'm glad we're able to establish where you're coming from in terms of looking at this fire. And without further ado, I'd like to start talking about it. Great. I'm looking forward to it. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan was one of the deadliest industrial disasters in U.S. history. Of the 146 souls lost at the blaze, 123 were women, many of them teenagers. So can you paint a picture of New York City at this time, especially for the young Jewish and Italian immigrant workers of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company? Sure, Patty. I, I think part of the the shocking effect of this fire was that First of all, the sheer death toll, 146 people died in this fire, the largest, uh, the deadliest, rather, industrial disaster in the nation's history at that time. And a lot of those people who, who perished were, like you said, they were, they were women, and they were, many of them were, were minors. They were children, essentially. So to, in terms of painting a picture, we have to remember that th some of the things that we're sort of accustomed to now in, in our current times were not in place in the past. So uh, things like child labor were common common practice. Children were out of economic need, were taken out of school, whatever schooling they had access to, to participate in the, in the workforce, really for survival. And that was especially true in immigrant communities. So in this case, many of those immigrants are, were, like you said, um, Jewish immigrants and also Italian immigrants. Those populations were disproportionately affected by this fire as, as a result of that. Needless to say, that's, um, that's shocking in today's environment to think of 14-year-olds uh, you know, working in a factory on essentially their day off as an extra day of work on a Saturday afternoon, beautiful Saturday afternoon when this fire broke out, um, while others who were more well-off were enjoying the day in the park nearby. So there are those contrasts in terms of opportunity and, you know, and an opportunity to live a good life. Those, these are all central to the fire and uh, central to the struggles in um, history more generally, but especially to the American story. So that kind of paints a little bit of a picture of who was affected. But also I'd like to just touch on something um, in terms of firefighting. This is especially relevant. But at the time of the fire, the city was an emerging vertical city. At the time, the, the tallest building in New York City was about 20 stories. So... If you look at Manhattan skyline today with these mega high-rise buildings, it's it's almost unfathomable to think of to, – to just remember that these high-rise buildings didn't always exist or weren't always that tall. But also, this was a rapid change over uh, the last century. And this time period we're looking at was uh, the sort of the, the beginning of that emergence and the things that were developing in terms of technology that were spurring that, that skyward development on – with things like uses of uh, structural steel, uses of uh, other materials like cast iron, also sort of mechanized technology, specifically elevators. So all of these things allowed for skyward development of our urban landscape, and and all of that was centralized on the, on the island of Manhattan. And this was central to the Triangle Fire story. So we had industrial workers being placed in positions that were new. It was a new problem set. And we had an emerging professionalized fire service that was still learning to deal with that problem set and, and also had their own developing technologies that were being used to address the emerging problem set. So in terms of performance, I think that's a useful place to start in terms of painting a picture in New York City. We had a, an emerging vertical city, and that was a, a challenge to the emerging professionalized fire service of the FDNY. Absolutely. And I think what's well known is that the Triangle Shirtwaist fire was the impetus for creating the FDNY's Bureau of Fire Prevention, but after speaking with you prior to this recording, I learned that Chief Edward Croker had the foresight to lobby for control of certain fire prevention measures before this fire. So can you share some of the reforms he was lobbying for? 
Correct. Uh, that is correct. And so Chief Edward Croker is noted in some of the history that's written about this fire in his, his strategic vision that essentially would have prevented this fire in many ways had his warnings been heeded. And there was a particular fire that, that sort of brought attention to his strategic vision, and that was the High Street Fire in Newark, New Jersey, which is a neighboring city for those unfamiliar. There was another garment factory fire, uh, also a fatal fire. And and basically, Chief Croker saw this and and realized this is a problem set that's that's going to come to bite us in, in that sense. Uh, it was it was going to come to fruition on the other side of the river. And in terms of his vision of, of addressing this, part of that vision was addressing fires before they happen in terms of fire prevention, which at the time, the New York City Fire Department didn't have the, the political mandate to do. And mm-hmm. part of his strategic importance for the fire service, for the fire department of the city of New York specifically, was that he uh, seized the political moment after the tragedy of the Triangle Fire and and achieved the political mandate to create fire prevention services as part of firefighting, as part of the FDMY, as a bureau, as, as separate from fire suppression, which is what um, it had been solely before that. So that was a, a strategic shift that was driven by the foresight. And unfortunately, the, he didn't, wasn't able to gain the political mandate to, to make this um, this development of the fire service until after... The tragedy, but it is a story of how leadership can sort of harness tragedy and drive change positively forward. And I think that's really uh, a huge part of his legacy. And he was chief of department at this time, right? Correct. And he was living in Engine 33's quarters, correct? Correct. So Engine 33 is a beautiful firehouse in, in Manhattan, Great Jones Street, and it's um, the former quarters of the chief department. And it's uh, it's an ornate building. It's worth a look. Even from the outside, it's beautiful. And people don't realize too now through labor, uh, this is also part of the labor discussion, but firefighters have uh, more humane working conditions now than they did at the time of the fire. And working hours and living conditions were, were very much tied to the firehouse themselves. So they were essentially living almost full-time in firehouses, you know, up until the turn of the century, and, the, and those things started to develop uh, from there onward. But the proximity uh, of the leadership was uh, people lived in the city. There wasn't this outward expansion to this, and there was no, you know, the suburbs, this all came later. So people who were involved in the fire service were very much more connected um, immediately to their geographic uh, neighborhoods. So now that we've set the stage, I'd like to discuss the fire, beginning with how it started. So Matt, can you describe the start of the blaze and, of course, the building construction? Sure. So just to you know, give us an overview. But basically, the, the fire was attributed to uh, essentially careless smoking, attributed to uh, either a cigar, or cigarette, uh, some form of rolled tobacco that would have been um, you know inadequately extinguished and thrown away near a bin of scraps. So uh, as we mentioned before, this this fire was a, a garment factory. You know. Long rows of tables where you know fabric was being cut and sewn together by sewing machines uh, into garments. The shirtwaist itself is uh, probably an unfamiliar term to most listeners, but it was basically a fashionable uh, women's blouse of the day. And this is a place where these were being manufactured. So there was obviously a lot of combustible material around the the shop floor. And as those materials were being cut and made into usable pieces, um, the scraps were sort of accumulating. And so there's a lot of um, things that were being used to process the materials on the shop floor. So there's a lot of heavy combustible fire load uh, to begin with. Mm-hmm. And in terms of construction, we would consider this building uh, a loft-style building. So I mentioned before about some of the uses of metal in, in architecture. This was built when it was constructed as a fireproof structure, which our understanding of that, that term would be slightly different today. But this loft-style quote-unquote fireproof structure was essentially a masonry uh, exterior walled building with, um, you know, steel and cast iron were used in, in terms of uh, sort of like a skeletal support to the building. There was also wood uh, in the building, um, but it wasn't considered uh, structurally instrumental, if, if that makes sense to people who aren't familiar with building construction. You know, people consider this a fireproof building. Well, people assume, well, if it's fireproof, how could, how could we have a fire like this? But what people have to understand about fireproof structures are the structures themselves are maybe not made of non-combustible materials. That doesn't prevent, obviously, the combustible materials from burning that are stored within them or used for ornamental or uh, non-structural supports. You know, that, that term fireproof can be a little misleading in terms of uh, looking at historical fires. Definitely. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add about the building or the blaze before we move forward? 
I guess I would just paint a picture for people that don't have the the images in front of them. Um, these images are all easily accessible on the on Cornell University's Kiel Center for Labor Studies. They have an excellent online archive that I would encourage people who are curious to to look. We're talking about an eleven story loft style building in Lower Manhattan. It's a corner building, Green Street and Washington Place. It was just a block off of uh, Washington Square Park. If that, if that kind of paints a, build, a picture of the building for, for the listeners, I think that would be helpful. Right. And here's where I'd really like to unpack the tactics the members of the FDNY applied at this fire. And I'm going to lean on your expertise to highlight what was, and it is hard to use the words successful or efficient, but when we look at this fire, I do want to stay process-oriented. So when it comes to water delivery and extinguishment, how was the Triangle Fire fought? One of the fascinating paradoxes that I found when I was really began studying the fire and reading the accounts that were already written about it was this exceptional loss of life. And yet, as I read the story of how the fire was fought, I was just shocked at how current it seems. Like this fire could have happened yesterday. I was at the time working on an engine company in Brooklyn. When I was reading Stein's work specifically, it just made me imagine, you know, if this fire happened today, it would have been extinguished in a, in a very similar fashion. You know, one of the things that can be misleading is um, one of the iconic images of the of the Shirtwaist Fire is this photograph of the building at its corner, and you see this master stream, what we call in the fire service, but it's basically a, a stream of water being applied to the building from an apparatus in the street, so from essentially a fire truck shooting water at the building from the outside. So, you know, in the fire service, I kind of assumed wrongly that the fire was fought from an, with exterior streams, which does happen. That's what we consider uh, strategically as a defensive operation. The legacy of uh, engine company operations in New York City are grounded in the aggressive interior attack. So that's the application of water at the seat of the fire from within the building. And that's the job of the engine companies in New York City still to mm -hmm. this day. Um, what I didn't realize was really the heritage of my own occupation at the time as uh, an engine company firefighter. And I hadn't realized that for example, technologies such as standpipe systems were in place and used. And I didn't realize that that was actually how the main body of fire was extinguished at this historic fire. Um, there were master streams applied to the fire as alternative means of trying to calm victims who were threatening and, and actually jumping from, from upper floors. But the fire was put out with an aggressive interior attack, which for, the, for the, those in the fire service listening, it may be as shocking as, like I said, I was shocked when I when I sort of matched up the images I had in my head of this historic fire and, and, and the accounts of what happened. I was surprised by that. But I, what I, I felt as I was reading that nobody had really looked deeply from uh, at the fire as a fire, a firefight, mm -hmm. where f fire service uh, personnel were called to an alarm and dealt with this as a fire. And I, that's what I really wanted to get into. So um, I'll just break down some of the engine company operations that happened there. So one of the really important things that happened there was there was a, a new s system of fire hydrants that were being used in New York City. It was called the high-pressure water system. Mm -hmm. And so the source of the water that was used to fight the fire was being drawn from this series of water mains. They were essentially were able to pressurize the water in the district where the fire was. So there, was, there were pumping stations on, on both the East River and the Hudson River that were connected to the system. So there was essentially an endless supply of water that could be pumped into this pressurized system of water pipes. And through the diversion of water at uh, water mains, the, the water could be centralized to the location of the fire, creating high pressure at the hydrant where the fire at the location of the fire. So up to 125 psi pounds per square inch. That was the um, the measurement of the the pressure of the water that was coming out of these hydrants. And there's still these hydrants are not no longer in service, but you could still find them. So any if anybody's a, a particularly interested in this this side of the the history of the fire, if you're exploring New York City and you see a, a a fire hydrant that looks a lot fatter, a lot larger, the barrel of it, uh, that's that's a high-pressure hydrant. They're no longer in service, but they're still out there. So that, that, that could be a fun find if, if somebody wants to uh, do a fire hydrant scavenger hunt. Matt, but, I have a quick question <laughs> sure. about them. Like, what years are we talking about them being in service? Because this fire is 1911. So right. how long had they been in place it was prior new, to this? It was a new system. So I believe uh, they began installing them in 1908, um, okay. but they were very new. So this is 1911 is the fire. This is the the decade preceding with the planning and the development and installation of these these hydrants. So essentially, uh, it's just a few years before the fire. So this was one of the first uh, large-scale demonstrations of their ability to deliver water to the to the site of the fire. 
So when it, when you're thinking about the the emergence of this vertical city, were these fire hydrants being put in place in response to that? You think was this part of the forethought of the leadership at the time? It was, and it's actually one of the things that some of the historians that have dealt with the fire, for example. David Von Drill wrote a book about the Triangle Fire, and there, there are a lot of detailed accounts of sort of these things that I'm talking about in terms of how the fire was fought. But some of the things that get lost in translation are some of these these firefighting aspects of water delivery, for example. And he frames things in terms of social history. So um, he's thinking of things in terms of the spirit of the age of the progressives. And they we're sort of at the end of the Gilded Age, uh, if you're into historical eras. And there's an argument, there's a school of thought in 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 uh, history circles that there's a, a lo- what's called a long progressive era. So that basically the, the progressive ideals, there are examples of them that go farther back in time than is traditionally observed. So I think the fire service is actually an example of that in the sense that many of the things like, first of all, the development of municipal fire service and the expansion of that with the uh, incorporation of the greater city of New York, and essentially the, the birth of the FDMY as we know it, those kinds of things happen before the progressive era begins. And the investment in, for example, water delivery infrastructure, this all happens again before what's traditionally known as the progressive era. And um, sort of uh, the the Triangle Fire itself is cited as one of the things that drives the progressive era, improvements in labor and labor labor rights and worker rights um, for children and things like that, women's rights. But um, some of the fire service elements of this story predate the fire. So I think that's very interesting for people that are very interested into the, the historical eras that are involved in this, in this time period. It's a very interesting time for me, uh, to me rather, the history of the FDNY. It's really sort of our formative years. So in terms of water delivery, the high pressure water system was basically a way of getting water to the fire area and pressurizing, in this case, a standpipe building. So they were putting water directly from the street into a building, which might sound mundane to somebody that's not familiar with some firefighting history, but Essentially, we're dealing with horse-drawn steam pumpers at this time period. So mm-hmm. in terms of um, pumping water, it, it was a very significant development of technology in the sense that we used to drag pumps that were imported from Europe with literal, literal horsepower to the scenes of fires. And the, and some of these original ones were, were hand-pumped with, with man, literal manpower. Right. right. So they were able to get enough pressure out of the hydrant itself directly from the, the water mains, although they were pumps from, like I said, from the rivers that augmented this system, they were able to basically use remote pumping to pressurize the water and go and, and bring water directly from the street into the building. This sort of experimental system that, that was being employed at the, at the Triangle Fire was quite notable. That's, that's a, a really important historical point in terms of how the fire was fought. And um, it allowed engine companies to stretch hose lines from the stairwells there were two stairwells in this building. One was on the Washington Place side of the building. The other was on the Green Street side of the building. And so the one of the first arriving engines, Engine 72, from what I've read, it seems that they were dedicated to you know connecting the water from the high-pressure system into the building. And then uh, Engine Company 18, which is now Squad 18, they had a um, hand line off a standpipe. And then Engine Company 33, you mentioned the quarters of uh, Great Jones Street earlier, Engine Company 33 also had a, a hose line that was connected to this standpipe system. And mm-hmm. those two hose lines put out what was described as a fire that completely had engulfed the eighth, the eighth floor entirely. So the eighth floor of this building was um, completely controlled by fire on arrival, and it was extinguished within 20 to 30 minutes by the accounts that are available. So even by today's standards, if there are any incident commanders out there listening. I, I, I'm not one, but I, I imagine that would still be impressive. Mm-hmm. And uh, as someone who's worked in an engine company, this volume of fire, this amount of fire that was put out with hand lines would be considered uh, you know, a solid accomplishment. It's um, to not be driven to a defensive posture in a fire like this by the volume of fire and to be able to aggressively attack from the interior. It's notable. Absolutely. That's not lost on me. I have a really in the weeds question for you that we might not need to keep, but I'm just wondering myself, like in terms of the hose stretch and being in the stairwell, were there any parallels to what is currently done today that you know of, or there was were that a, something? There were a lot of parallels. There's a whole background to the development of fire hose that, that's a separate discussion, but the, these things are all, have all been evolving over the last century as well. By today's standard operating procedures, the, those hand lines would have been attacking from the same stairwell as opposed to both stairwells. So typically, um, like I said, the term fireproof is a little bit a broad term here, but in today's fireproof buildings, uh, the standpipe would be utilized 
in a particular stairway that would be designated what we'd call an attack stairwell. And uh, other available stair stairwells could be designated as evacuation stairwells so that those mm -hmm. stairs would remain, remain closed to protect occupants from smoke and heat as they mm -hmm. exit the building through that stairwell while the attack stairwell would be open to the fire area and the, the hose line attack would commence from a particular designated area. So that would be some, you know, some difference in terms of tactics, but essentially it was, uh, it was quite similar, which, uh, like I said, at the time when I was reading this was surprising to me to realize, um, some of the engine company tactics had, uh, a really rich history throughout the century. And, uh, this was a, a prime example of, of how, to what extent they were employed. And you have to remember also, this is all before breathing apparatus and things, uh, that, that, right. right. So this is quite literally a group of firefighters connecting to a hose to a, a pipe in the hallway and then opening a door into uh, a complete inferno and all the smoke and heat that went with it and quite literally uh, attacking as low as on their bellies and, and putting a fire out a uh, very impressive magnitude. So it's a testament to the engine company. At this point, unless there's something else you want to add about engine operations, I'd like to move on to ladder company operations. Yeah, I think we touched on uh, some of the, the nuance of the hose lines from the exterior were used to sort of calm victims while the hoses from the interior were used to attack the fire. And the use of revolutionary technology um, through the high pressure system that was notable about the fire in terms of engine company operations. And also the, the grit of the people who accomplished it. So like I said, this is somewhat of a paradox in that the engine company operations were largely successful in terms of putting out the fire in a, re in a reasonable amount of time. The challenge to this fire and the tragic end of this fire was a lot of the latter company operations were charged with uh, gaining access to fire area and then, uh, and then addressing life hazard. These attempts were valiant, yet the death toll was high. So that's, this is where you see sort of a paradox between what happened with the engine companies and then what the challenges that were the latter companies had to face that day. So do you want to unpack some of the challenges that they had to navigate? Sure. So essentially, it's a powerful demonstration of the danger of being trapped above a fire. So uh, the fire progressed rapidly, and what happened was the, it overtook, as I said, the, the entire eighth floor, and then began to extend upward through what we call auto exposure, fire you know, burning outside of a window, uh, lick, flames licking out, and then sort of those flames licking into the window above it. And it, it also extended through... Um, up the stairwells at, at a later point. The danger of the people that were trapped above, part of that was created by uh, a lack of being alerted in the sense that um, the people on the ninth floor were, there was a delay in alerting them that there was a fire below them. There was an alarm system in the building also, which also was a surprise to me, but um, there was a, an inability to connect to the people on the ninth floor to alert them of the fire until the fire had already progressed uh, to an extensive degree. So there was a large number of people who were on the ninth floor and 10th floor, essentially trapped by the fire uh, very early into the, the development of the fire. So this is uh, largely the, the reason so many people died, despite the best efforts of the fire service. And one of the other things that created uh, this, this high death toll was that some of the available technologies were unable to address the situation. Um, I'll give the examples of things that were typically used in the fire service for ladder company operations at the time. So one was called the life safety net. So this was mm -hmm. essentially a it looked like a you know looked like a trampoline type net would be held by firefighters on the outside and and people who were forced to jump from a building could be caught in this this sort of trampoline type net and that was effective at smaller buildings so this was an older technology that was still being carried by apparatus at the time but in the emerging vertical city they weren't effective at great heights um, because of just the velocity of people coming down and um, it was just ineffective in preventing these people from being injured by the fall. The life safety nets were, de were deployed at the Triangle Fire. Um, one person did survive hitting the net and then, and then coming down to the street um, from an upper floor, but they only survived for a day. They died in Bellevue Hospital the following day. So that, that's the only example of a initially successful but eventually tragic outcome from the use of that. So um, in, in smaller buildings, they would still be effective, but that at the time, you know, it wasn't effective in this application. And uh, there's some question as to how ta that tactic particularly was applied in terms of uh, uh, to reduce a calming effect versus to actually right. you know, to work. And this, that's a discussion too um, in terms of what tactics are used. But one of the other available tactics was the use of the scaling ladder. So right. there was a particular ladder that could be basically you'd go below the fire, climb mm -hmm. out a window and stick a, a ladder with a hook on the end of it to the window sill above you and then climb the exterior of the building and enter the, the floor above. Those were also brought off rigs at this fire, but 
the fire had progressed so rapidly that essentially there was nowhere to deploy the scaling ladder because when the eighth floor became completely engulfed in flames, there was no access on the eighth floor to get to the ninth floor. That's where people were, were showing up in great numbers trapped. I should also mention one of the reasons that all these people were trapped on the ninth and 10th floors were the, the fire escapes. There were fire escapes in this building. They emptied out into a shaft uh, behind the, the exterior walls on that corner. So on the back side of the building, and the construction of the fire escape was such that it became unstable and failed during the fire with people on it. So that people fell to their deaths from the fire escape itself. Um, but that just exacerbated the the life hazard that was showing at windows on the ninth floor and tenth floor from the street side. So mm -hmm. the life safety net was one of those things that was applied in this case unsuccessfully to try to address that. The scaling ladders were essentially deemed useless by the the volume of the fire in the sense that there was nowhere to to get the ladder out the window to get above the fire. So those were two things. And there's also uh, ladder 20 was uh, quoted also nearby and they they were able to raise what would be considered, it was, it was a mechanically raised ladder. So it was an antecedent of uh, what we call an aerial ladder today, which mm -hmm. are now powered hydraulically. And uh, we also have what are called tower ladder apparatus in New York City. Essentially, it's a boom. Um, there's hydraulic stabilizers that, that uh, lift the, the truck off the ground and stabilize it so that a boom can be operated and there's a basket or a bucket that's attached to the end of that ladder and the hydraulic controls can bring you to either rooftops or windows. So one of the things people don't understand about the fire is that even today, people can become trapped on upper floors. You know, we have buildings that are, you know, soar skyward well above where we can reach with ladders. The difference is that we've developed fire code that allows for people to get to gain egress from those upper floors down to the street. So things like sprinkler systems, things like enclosed fireproof stairwells, mm -hmm. these are all things that developed out of the Triangle Fire and they have tactical implications. So this was a building where the fire was, it was in the stairwell essentially at a certain point and the heat and flames were extending up the stairwell and uh, trapping people. You know, in today's environment, that stairwell would have a door that could be closed to allow for egress from floors above. So that's one of the things uh, that would have changed the um, the problem set on arrival for these ladder companies. You know, they were dealing with an emerging problem set, and the, and these were this was an illustration of some of the major obstacles that were in this case unable to be overcome. The ladder was only able to be raised the sixth floor, so there was hope that it might encourage people that help was coming, but there was no way to reach the ladder to where the people were trapped. Were there any other tools used at this fire that have implications on FDMI tactics today? The use of force puntry tools. So one of the criticisms that was observed in some of the things I read in the history was uh, there was an onlooker who was hit. There was a large crowd gathering watching this this tragedy unfold. Like I said it was the end of a, a Saturday, which for the, the workers at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire was a work day, an extra work day. And for many others, it was a day of leisure spent nearby park. And there were several people who sort of bore, bore witness to the fire that were of note. One of them was a city coroner. His name was D.C. Winterbottom, and he was quoted in some of the history that's available. I'll paraphrase. I don't have the quote in front of me. But he basically said, you know, had, had the firemen only brought axes to the fire, you know, people could have been saved, which just sounded uh, to me as I read it, it just sounded inaccurate on its face. So it was just something that was probably just repeated in the sort of the muckraking periodicals of the day. And it found its way into um, the histories, I believe, because people don't understand the firefighting aspect, which is kind of where this is all my my efforts have been focused on, you know, if somebody could read a criticism like that, and if they don't understand how this fire played out, they might assume that that was a valid critique. And one of the things I'm trying to find out is exactly what kind of hand tools the firefighters had available or which ones were on scene. There's an evolution of, it's a widely used tool on, uh, and there's different versions of the tool, but we call it a Halligan tool. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a vast history to that, which I won't get into now, but there's, it's basically a pry bar. So there were different versions of this style of pry bar that existed in the, in the FDNY uh, throughout its history. And it's unclear as of now as to which of those style of tools were available, but it's likely that they, they were available at the fire. So the, the question is, well, then why weren't they effective? Well, as we talked about before the development of the fire, there was a heavy fire load on, on the eighth floor and there was access to the eighth floor. So the there was a stairwell door that was it's widely believed that it was locked. Actually, there was a door on the eighth floor that was also believed to be locked that was eventually opened during the course of the fire. The door on the Washington Place stairs on the ninth floor, the floor above the fire, where many people were trapped and, and leapt to their deaths. That door was believed, widely believed to be locked at the time of the fire. And the, the, the rationale was that the, uh, the factory owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, were accused of locking that door routinely to prevent theft from the factory. 
and it, the accusation was that the, those doors were locked during the fire, which prevented egress from, for people trying to escape the fire. And uh, it became an issue. They were eventually acquitted in a criminal trial, but you know the, hist- the history s- seems to consider that locked door on the ninth floor to be a historical fact, regardless of the results of the trial. But um, in terms of firefighting, why it's important is if that door was locked, uh, obviously gaining access to that door into the stairwell would have potentially helped the people who were trapped there. But the criticism where it falls short is that you know the, that was on the floor above the fire, and the problem was the fire needed to be extinguished before people, the firefighters could get to the ninth floor to open that door. Another, just while we're, while we're there, another um, thing that came out later in the fire code was the doors to the shop floor as designed at the ash building, they open inward to the shop floor. So what happens in an emergency when people want to get out, they flock to the doors and then they open the doors to get out. But as the crowd form behind the people at the door, there becomes more pressure on that door. You know, and when it opens inward to the shop floor, all, all these people are trying to get to the door and pushing, pushing to get out. So the door was unable to be unopened and uh, even in the unlocked position. So that's something that has changed in the fire code for buildings of a certain occupancy type and square footage. Th- those doors have to open outward from the point of origin outward to egress. So it's something that, w- that would be now a different scenario. So th- there are some things I'm still curious about in terms of you know what tools were on scene as it relates to the fire floor. So I'll touch on this real quick. So most people see a fire escape and they see, well, that's a boy out of, out of a fire. Firefighters see a fire escape and they say, yeah, we get way into the fire or way into the floor above the fire. So it's a difference of perspective that might be hard to understand for some people. Where, where I'm getting at is the fire code changes that, that follow triangle change the infrastructure that we deal with when we show up to a fire. So fire code has implications for, the, for fighting the fire as much as preventing the fire or keeping people safe during the fire. They change the landscape. They change what we have available to work with when we get there. So the things like the width of fire escapes, which were eventually um, expanded to create easier e- paths of egress, things like how they're secured and keeping them sturdy and up during, you know, held up during fires um, for the duration of the firefight, things like the width of stairwells, the swing of doors, th- those things are all fire code issues and really more specifically relate to egress. But for, for the fire service personnel that respond to fires, they create they shape the fire ground that we deal with, and they and they sh- which also shape the tactics we can match to to tackle a problem set. You know, all of this to me right now is just kind of making me think about the mindset of the firefighters responding to the fire because we're talking about this transitional period where they might have familiar tactics that they're trying to apply to this new problem set in real time. And I want to talk more about that um, perspective and maybe the stress they were under in a little bit, but want to continue talking about the, the fire and um, civilian rescues. Yeah, I think I think one, maybe this will help us transition also, but uh, I think one of the things that has been the focus of my research is the use of adjoining buildings to affect rescue. You know, I was curious about the heritage of this particular aspect of our preparation phase and planning. So today it would be routine to use adjoining structures to access, for example, the rooftop of a the building of a structural fire where the, where the fire was. And if there were, were horizontal access from one building to another, that would be another consideration. And one thing I learned and hadn't come across it in any of the research or histories that have been written, one thing I learned at last year's LUF event when we toured the building was as it stands today, there is a horizontal access from the adjoining building to an, a stairwell that then adjoins the then Ash building, now, now Brown building, uh, NYU's building. So I'm still researching whether that was original in its design, but it has implications in terms of potential for for rescue efforts that didn't play into what happened that day. But uh, you know, as I try to backtrack and look at you know how some of these things developed in our in the history of our procedures, that's a that's a question that's of interest to me. And another factor uh, in terms of egress, just before we get into some of the civilian efforts that took place in this fire, there was uh, one of the ways that life hazard was successfully addressed was the through the use of elevators. So I don't know if now would be a good time to touch on that. Absolutely. I think um, this is a great segue because we've been peppering in, you know, the term civilian rescues. But I think at this point it would be good to discuss them because they played such a significant role in rescue efforts. They did. And and so I think if we we could start with there were two major efforts here that that affected a positive outcome. So one of them were was launched by the elevator operators of the day 
in in the fire building and then the other the other effort was was made from the adjoining building and from rooftop to rooftop so let's let's talk about the elevators first if that works yeah absolutely so uh, the elevator that day on, on the day of the fire was manned by a man named joseph zito and gaspar uh, forgive my pronunciation uh, mortalalo these gentlemen were sort of wrapping up their work day this fire broke out at the end of the work day and when they were alerted that there was a fire they immediately proceeded to the reported floor of the fire, the eighth floor, and we were able to successfully evacuate a number of people in the elevator car. This is going on simultaneously with people self-evacuating on the fire escape before it collapsed and and down one of the two stairwells. But basically, one of the stair stairwells was, had clear access, and people were self-evacuating down the staircase uh, on the Green Street side of the building. Now, the elevator operators bravely were trying to assist the people who were working on the eighth floor from you know to leave there, and they were ferrying people down. They went um, to the 8th floor, also to the 12th floor where the corporate offices were, where the factory owners were actually present. There was efforts to reach those two places. Where this effort became really significant in terms of uh, bravery and civilian performance uh, in the face of unfathomable stress and really life or death gravity, they were proceeding with the elevator as the fire progressed in the 8th floor and overtook the entire 8th floor and exposed the stairwells where people were really becoming trapped. And after the fire escape had collapsed, in the rear of the building. And while some of the, the tactics that were routine in lower rise buildings were sort of unsuccessfully playing out on the street, these two gentlemen proceeded and made repeated trips to the ninth floor, the, the floor above the fire where all these people were trapped and were able to get, it's unclear as to the number, but they were able to make uh, successive trips to the ninth floor as the fire really burned out of control and were able to ferry people down. The last trip they made it w it became so untenable that um, the last people that weren't able to fit in the car would end up jumping into the shaft um, following that elevator oh, down. Wow. So they, they, they hung in there until the end, until there was really no more access. I think that was uh, a case of quote-unquote regular civilians doing extraordinary things at, uh, under extreme stress and successfully. And to, also just to tie in tactically, so just so people understand, in, in high-rise buildings now, we the fire service routinely would use elevators to gain access um, to upper floors, but procedurally, we would never take an elevator to a floor where there was a, an active fire going on. It's, it's considered a completely unsafe act. So these gentlemen were really, you know, sticking their necks out when they did what they did. This was really an elevator level of, of uh, stepping up to the plate in terms of, uh, you know, just looking out for fellow humanity. And these guys really put themselves in uh, dire straits here. But it's uh, it's an example of how important elevators can be in a vertical city to to facilitate the transfer of equipment, transfer of personnel to effect rescue through um, safer means than bringing the elevator to the fire floor. But uh, it's uh, it's worth noting as a historical antecedent to the the use of elevators in firefighting. And in terms of performance, it's interesting that people will perform to the level of their training, and, and that's something we talk about in, in training in the fire service. But we have to remember these these people may not have been expert rescuers, but they were expert elevator operators. So what they were able to do is to apply under high levels of stress, they were able to apply what they know to a problems that they were familiar with um, to an extent. And they were able to do it and think quickly and and decisively and achieve a, a positive outcome. And that was uh, in large part due to their their routine. And that's, uh, that's something we talk about in performance coaching right. and things like that. So it's it's interesting. It's an interesting micro case study within the Triangle Fire. It's an interesting example of um, playing to the strengths of your routines and how performance can be optimized through those routines under extreme duress. To that point and the point you made earlier about the use of adjoining buildings, there was another civilian who played a key role in civilian rescues that day. Do you want to talk about the law professor, Frank Somer? Sure. So, you know, as a firefighter, we pre-operational plan rescues all the time, potential hypothetical situations where we potentially may act and do these things that would be considered extraordinary for civilians. So it was exciting to read some of this stuff. Um, and aside from the elevator operations, the, the other most dramatic rescue that was made was affected by this, this gentleman, Frank Summers, who was a retired Essex County Sheriff. Mm -hmm. And he was working in the adjoining building, which was uh, he was teaching at NYU's uh, law school. He was teaching a, a college class, and this fire broke out in the building next door, the adjoining building. Meaning, when I say adjoining, meaning that it shared a, a common wall, and and the roof line was roughly in line with the with the the adjoining roof. So the building's connected in a sense. So 
He's in a separate building. He's next door. They hear the commotion. The students go to they they go to a window and they see all this this tragedy unfolding before them before their eyes. Being a um, a retired Essex County Sheriff, he sprung into action and he I guess had some familiarity with the building or made some assumptions based on whatever he had observed and led a group of students to the rooftop of the the building on Washington Place that was connected to the Ash Building. And what they found when they got up to the rooftop was that the roofs were slightly uneven. There was a difference in height, but they found a painter's ladder on their roof and they were able to, you know, lay the painter's ladder over the side of their rooftop and which gave them access to the roof of the Ash Building. And then they were able to proceed over a skylight, uh, which was above the 10th floor of the Ash Building. And they were able to reach down to people who were trapped on that top floor and pull them up out of the skylight. There were people standing on top of workshop tables trying to mm-hmm. escape this top floor where all this heat and smoke was building up and fire was extending, essentially chasing them out of the building. The fire had already extended. Some people had escaped through the stairwell at this point, but the fire had already extended up the stairwell. So that was inaccessible. So that Frank Summers and his law students at NYU were able to pull people out of this, this uh, skylight and bring people out of the, the, uh, the fire that way. Um, some of them coming out literally with their hair singed and clothing burnt. The timing of it and the you know the decisiveness of his actions and his students' actions were uh, were also notable. And um, procedurally, for me, looking into this historically, it really brought out the importance of sort of examining and kind of trying to get into this heritage of how we use adjoining buildings. And um, it's complicated historically because firefighting is often taught through the oral tradition. You know, it's a, it's a half century after the Triangle Fire that some of our procedural knowledge has, has been consolidated into documents that we now now number the thousands of pages of uh, things <laughs> that we're, we're uh, tasked with studying to cover mm-hmm. all the different technologies that we use and all the different complex systems that we, that we interact with in a, in a complex urban setting like New York City. So I was fascinated by um, the fact that procedurally, this would be very familiar in terms of tenement firefighting, which is really where our, our procedures are really born out of, the, out of the tenement districts and ex- expanded from there. That was really the, the birthplace of our procedural documents in the FDMY. And some of the, the foundational texts are related to uh, buildings like tenements. And the use of adjoining buildings is directly addressed in these, in these sort of uh, seminal documents. So my question as a researcher was some of it was grounded in was this part of the skill set or the knowledge set of the guy, of the the firefighters who responded that day or was this something that emerged over time and or maybe was this a mismatch of the problem set in terms of like if that let's say 20 truck was was operating there that day if 20 truck responded to a tenement fire down the block would they have tried to use the adjoining building versus uh, not using it for this building type uh, I don't know the answer to that mm-hmm. um, it's just as a researcher and sort of my academic pursuits, that's kind of those are the kinds of things I'm looking at in terms of the legacy of the fire, which I'm trying to establish through mm-hmm. through that research. It's sort of the aim of what I'm trying to do is try to figure out, you know, why does this fire matter so much for the FDNY? It's a, it's a huge tragedy that should be honored and thought of in a, in a sense of uh, something we want to overcome as a, a department. But in terms of things that were successful in procedures, I'm very fascinated by this question of the use of adjoining buildings and to what extent. Was that just absent from our our communal knowledge at the time, or was this just not applied and because of the the difference in the in the emerging vertical city and, and this building type? And that's sort of an open question on my end, and that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to finding more information to you know come up with some sort of conclusion on that. But I think it's in terms of performance that's um, very relevant to even today. So understanding our problem set and applying the correct tactics and pre pre operational planning related to that that's all part of optimizing performance in the, on the fire ground. You mentioned that there was a crowd forming outside of the building. So I have to assume the members were already under a tremendous amount of stress trying to contain the fire and rescue victims, but all while having eyes on them must have added to the stress. Um, I have to imagine like you being a firefighter have experienced something similar to this what can you imagine the level of stress was like for people operating at the fire? I can attest to the, the, the pressure of crowds. I'm stretching it to say I pulled up on a scene of this magnitude, especially one with anywhere near this amount of life hazard. But I can relate to it in the sense that um, these things are, when you arrive there, you know, people are calling for help and um, you're there to help and you have to execute 
or else, right? So the, the, the level of pressure, there's no level of pressure higher than that. Quite literally, sometimes it's do or die for, for the people who um, are executing things like successfully. Sometimes there's a, you know, you're putting your own safety at risk. So that's the commitment you make when you sign up to become a first responder. And, you know, the magnitude of this fire and the magnitude of the crowd forming and having eyes on them and also the, the sheer number of people that needed immediate help, I can only imagine how how that would have felt. But some one, one thing to kind of think about is uh, when people are trained to deal with these emergencies, they, they become focused on, they become very task oriented. And that's part of what, uh, that's part of what allows them to do their job. You know, when they have available tactics that can help the situation, typically the, the professional, will, they focus on their job and that's, and that's how the rescues are made. Um, but the, the, you know, as opposed to a crowd of onlookers who are really just trying to make sense of what they're seeing and, and are understandably upset by what they're seeing and, and, you know, just, but they, but they're going to, they're going to ramp up that sense of anxiety if you're, if you're too attuned to that. Um, people don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it as a first responder. So that's, there's an element of that to it. Um, you know, people, people will tell you what to, what, they, what they think you should be doing sometimes, which is um, sometimes funny. Um, I only laugh because of the uh, similarity or the similar experience that I had as a reporter. Nobody thanks a reporter. Right. And, you know, while you, while you mentioned the reporting aspect, um, there's, uh, I know we're, we're kind of talking about the stress levels, but um, the, one example of um, reporters are very much, or journalists are very much part of the Triangle story. And one, one such reporter was a man named William Gunn Shepard, who um, was, a, was a journalist, and he ha happened to also witness this fire and bear witness to the fire and ended up in a phone booth across the street and narrating this fire to his editor as it unfolded. Mm -hmm. So I, can, I, I would imagine that would have been a, a stressful uh, moment for a journalist, but, but also uh, a, um, a chance to really do service to the history of the fire and to be able to share the, the, the true story of what happened with the, with the readership. Uh, under extreme circumstances, uh, watching people literally jump to their deaths in, in front of them. The same held true for the first responders. People were trying to apply tactics to effect rescue. In many cases, this was unsuccessful, and simultaneously the fire was being put out, and the crowd was uh, looking on, and uh, that, that has its own set of pressures. One aspect of the Triangle Fire in terms of um, sort of stress and, and how it played out in the operation. As I mentioned, many first responders are, are, are task-oriented in terms of applying tactics during an emergency, and that becomes their focus uh, under heightened stress. One person who's a step removed from that stress, but also heavily involved in it, is uh, the incident commander. So in this case, Chief Edward Worth was tasked with running this fire uh, as it unfolded in its um, early and tragic stages in terms of uh, the lives being lost literally in front of him as he, as he commanded this fire. By all accounts in the history, it was handled quite well in terms of calling for additional resources and applying the tactics that were that were at hand to try to calm the people who were trapped while the fire was being put out in the hopes that they would be eventually be able to be reached despite the heavy fire condition trapping them above the fire. This was certainly a, a tough fire for any fire service personnel, and I imagine as a, as a chief officer, you know, which I'm not, but I imagine that that would be a, a difficult fire to run. The losses are mounting as you're as you're operating. And every decision counts. And as a leader of that type of operation, I would imagine it, it would, you know, take a lot of fortitude to work through that, and to, you know, a lot of resilience to, you know, sort of bounce back from that and continue to serve. Aside from the journalists you mentioned, who most greatly informed your research, and what was the result of curating all these stories? And I'm wondering, did any record even surprise you? So I would have to say, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but on um, the narrative of the Triangle Fire really stands on the shoulders of Leon Stein, and and you know I kind of had that surprising encounter with his just by chance find a first edition copy of his work, you know that felt in some way serendipitous and uh, inspiring. You know reading his account, there's a lot of other work out there, but his work is most influential not only because it's really the first book length treatment of the fire, but he was a fabric cutter for the uh, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, and he eventually became the editor of their trade publication. And as a person with an interest in writing and, uh, and reading and research, his, not only the accomplishment and, and scholarship that he demonstrated, um, he interviewed survivors of the fire you know, before many of these people passed away, you know, years, years after the fire, and was able to um, assemble a picture of the fire that would have otherwise been absent from the historical record. So that's an incredible accomplishment. But not only did he do that, but he, he did it with such style, such literary style. There's uh, some people may be familiar with um, Florentinian poet who wrote uh, Dante's Inferno. 
and it's uh, the chapters of the book have excerpts from this poem. It's um, things like you know we sometimes think about performance and and uh, resilience and uh, things like the ethical implications of, of operations. So I'll just give you a quick you know quote from the book, um, and, and it deals kind of with sort of this tragic, just really tragic situation that was sort of created by the industrial economy of the time, sort of the, the workplace conditions that were sort of um, intention for the, the business model, but you know had implications in this tragedy. So he quotes uh, this poem. He says, "A death by violence and painful wounds are to our neighbors given." And so to frame violence in such a in such a way, I think it brings uh, this human drama back to you know on a cultural level. It brings it to a level that we can understand you know in terms of storytelling, in terms of how we understand tragedy, how how we understand things that are timeless. And um, I think that was one of his greatest accomplishments. It's something that stuck with me as I, as I researched. Absolutely. It sounds like you did such extensive research and it shows in the de- level of detail you're able to describe this fire, this historic event that everybody knows so well for, like we discussed, maybe labor laws and then the Bureau of Fire Prevention. But Thank you, Patty. And I, I'm, uh, you know, my my interest is sort of narrow in this, and I'm trying to really explore the the fire department's heritage from this fire. But people that are really interested in the story, that it, it's much better told by others. So, if you thought I did an okay job, I'm, that's that's I appreciate that. But I encourage people to really take a look at specifically Leon Stein's The Triangle Fire. There's a centennial edition out there that gives you some historical context. And you know, I would start there. And if it, if you catch the bug like I did, then you can you can work your way through the other books. Um, and you can, if people are interested, you can come visit the the site of the Triangle Fire and see the building yourself. And there's a there's an effort, uh, a grassroots effort, to memorialize the the, the great uh, loss that happened there. Um, there's a ceremony every year. The fire department plays a part in that ceremony. And there's a an effort to construct a permanent memorial to those lost in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, and uh, I'm excited to see that come to fruition. It's a it's an important historical site for many different people for many different reasons. This is a real touchstone for American history, New York City history, and certainly New York City fire history. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about that FDNY ceremony that I think it's Ladder 20 takes part in every year to commemorate this fire. So, can you describe that ceremony for our listeners? Sure. Every year, there's a ceremony to commemorate the Triangle Dead. The fire department plays a sort of central part in that ceremony in that the apparatus, the fire apparatus, the ladder company who responded the day of the fire reenacts their efforts to reach those trapped above the fire, and they raise their ladder in salute to those who, who were lost. And it's a, it's a reminder for our current fire service members, FDNY and elsewhere, that we always need to aspire you know, to our mission, and that's to protect life primarily. It's uh, done by, you know, continued efforts, uh, developments of technology and the, and the application of such technologies, understanding our history and understanding, you know, what's come before us and how we can learn from the past to apply it to the next fire. That That's a reminder to me personally. But mm-hmm. as far as the ceremony goes, it's, uh, it's a beautiful ceremony, and the, there's a, a firefighter who rings a bell to commemorate each each person who who died, and, and the names are read of the, of the, the people who passed away. People may be f- familiar with that sort of similar experience um, in terms of commemorating uh, the victims of S- September 11th. Um, it's a similar mm-hmm. styled ceremony in that sense. There are uh, roses that are laid out on the sidewalk where many people fell to their deaths uh, to commemorate the, the Triangle Dead. Some of the activists that have sort of coalesced around this commemoration also have constructed uh, shirtwaists. The garments are actually walked down the street and assembled in front of the building. It's a very visual ceremony. People come and speak. Um, as well. But to me, the most powerful elements of the ceremony are the visual aspects and those uh, symbolic acts. So that, that happens every year. March 25th, uh, 1911 was the fire, just to remind everybody. So every March 25th, there's a ceremony there. And it's worth, uh, if you're in New York City, it's worth seeing for yourself. Lastly, I have to ask, what do you want people to take away from looking at history with an emphasis on what we like to call the human factors at Leadership Under Fire? I think the emphasis that that I would place on it is people are capable of, of amazing things. You know, you look at these elevator operators that you know affected these rescues, these these young students that pulled people out of a burning building from an adjoining rooftop, and then professionally, these firefighters who got on their bellies and literally crawled into the the seat of this fire and put this fire out uh, with no assistance of uh, very little protection from the heat, um, no respiratory protection. Um, nothing but water, water and the uh, the gumption to do it. That's that's inspiring to me. I mean, we have a lot of advantages now in some senses in terms of technology. 
you know, uh, it was a gritty operation. This is obviously a tragic thing that we have to acknowledge, but also there were some hidden wins here for me in terms of looking at the history. It, it seemed to be flat out a tragedy in the sense of operationally, the significant loss of life. It's easy to dismiss this as a failure, but when you really look into the nuance of how the fire was approached, it, you know, with a little bit of insight into how, how those things play out, you can see how in many ways this was a proving ground for some of the things that we still use today. It's a testament to the aggressive interior fire attack, which is to me the biggest takeaway. This has been so great, Matt. I wanna say thank you for taking the time to be with me today. And I would like to bring you back on the show in the future for another historical human performance episode, if that's all right. Patty, that would be great. I'd be excited to partake. And uh, this is just one example in terms of case study of a rich tapestry of history in New York City and elsewhere that, that can inform our performance in the future. So thank you so much for having me. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.